0: Chapter 7 of Cardinal Wolsey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caveat. Cardinal Wolsey by Mandel Crichton. Chapter 7. Renewal of Peace. 1523-1527. The events of the year 1523 had practically made an end of the Imperial Alliance. Henry VIII was not in a position to go to war again, and his confidence in Charles V's good intentions towards him was dispelled. Charles and Francis had had enough of war, and both of them secretly desired peace, but neither of them would make the first move towards it. Wolsey watched their movements keenly, and strove that English interests should not be entirely sacrificed in the pacification which seemed imminent. He strove to induce Charles to allow proposals of peace to proceed from England, which should arbitrate on the differences between him and Francis. He urged that in any negotiations which Charles himself undertook, he was bound to consider how Henry would be recompensed for his losses. Moreover, he secretly opened up negotiations of his own with the French court, and used the imperial alliance as a means to heighten England's value to France the more wolsey watched events the more he became convinced that the best thing was to make a separate peace with france yet in such a way as to avoid an open breach with the emperor there were other reasons besides the failure of military expeditions and the distrust in any good result from their continuance impelled wolsey to a pacific policy he knew only too well that war was impossible and that the country could not bear the continued drain on its resources if henry the seventh had developed the royal power by a parsimony which enabled him to be free from parliamentary control, Henry VIII had dazzled his people by the splendour of royalty, and had displayed his magnificence to such an extent that Englishmen were beginning to doubt if they could afford much longer to be so important, or rather if England's importance in continental affairs were worth all the money that it cost. Of late years, the weight of taxation had become oppressive, and the expenses of the last campaign were difficult to meet. There was no difference between the national revenue and the royal revenue in Wolsey's days. The king took all the money he could get and spent it as he thought good. If he went to war, he expected his people to pay for it. In an ordinary way, the king was well provided for by his feudal dues and the proceeds of customs, tonnage and poundage, and the tax on wool, wool fells and leather. Where extraordinary expenses were incurred, Parliament was summoned and granted taxes to the king. The vote was reckoned on an old assessment of tenths and fifteenths of the value of chattels possessed by the baronage and the commons. And when Parliament made this grant, the clergy in their convocation granted a tenth of clerical incomes. The value of a tenth and a fiftieth was £30,000, of a clerical tenth, £10,000, so that the usual grant in case of an emergency amounted to £40,000 from the whole realm. For his expedition of 1513... Henry obtained a vote of two-tenths and fifteenths, besides a subsidy of the graduated income and property tax, which was estimated to produce £160,000. This had to be supplemented by a further grant of tenths and fifteenths in 1515. It was in 1515 that Wolsey became Chancellor, and with that office assumed the entire responsibilities for the affairs of state. He managed to introduce some order into the finances, and during the years of Pacific diplomacy... Things went tolerably well, but the French expeditions were costly, and in April 1523, Parliament had to be summoned to pay the King's debts. The war against France was popular, and men were willing to contribute. So, on the 15th of April, Henry VIII opened Parliament, and Tunstall, Bishop of London, delivered the usual oration in praise of the King and grief over the evils of the time. The Commons departed, and elected as their Speaker, Sir Thomas More, who had already abandoned the quiet paths of literature, the stormy sea of politics. The King's assent was given in the usual manner to his appointment, and the session was adjourned. The Commons doubtless began to take financial matters under their consideration, but it was thought desirable that they should have a definite statement of the national needs. On the 29th of April, Wolsey went to the House, and, after urging the importance of the interests at stake in the war, proposed a subsidy of £800,000 to be raised according to the old method, by a tax of four shillings in the pound, on all goods and lands. Next day there was much debate on this proposal. It was urged that the sudden withdrawal of so large an amount of ready money would seriously affect the currency, and was indeed almost impossible. A committee was appointed to represent to Wolsey that this was the sense of the house, and beg him to induce the king to moderate his demands. Wolsey answered that he would rather have his tongue pulled out with a pair of red-hot pincers, than carry such a message to the king. Commons, in a melancholy mood, renewed their debate till Wolsey entered the House and desired to reason with those who opposed his demands. On this, Sir Thomas More, as Speaker, defended the privilege of the House by saying, It was the order of that House to hear and not to reason save among themselves. Whereupon, Wolsey was obliged to content himself with answering such objections as had come to his ear. He argued, it would seem, with vigour, that the country was much richer than they thought, and he told them some unpleasant truths which came with ill grace from himself about the prevalence of luxury. After his departure, the debate continued till the House agreed to grant two shillings in the pound on all incomes of £20 a year and upwards, one shilling on all between 20 and 2 and fourpence on all incomes under £2. This payment to be extended over two years. This was increased by a county member who said, Let us gentlemen of £50 a year and upwards give the King of our lands a shilling in the pound to be paid in two years the borough members stood aloof and allowed the landholders to tax themselves an extra shilling in the pound if they choose to do so. This vote on the 21st of May and Parliament was procured until 10th of June. Meanwhile, popular feeling was greatly moved by rumours of an unprecedented tax and what was really done was grossly exaggerating it on all sides. As the members left the house, an angry crowd greeted them with jeers. We here say that you will grant four shillings in the pound. Do so and go home, we advise you. Really, the members had done the best they could, and worse things were in store for them, but when the session was resumed, the Knights of the Shire showed some resentment that they had been allowed to outdo the burgesses in liberality. They proposed that, as they had agreed to pay a shilling in the pound, on land assessed over £50 in the third year, so a like payment should be made in the fourth year on all goods over the value of £50. There was a stormy debate on this motion, but Sir Thomas More at length made peace, and it was passed. Thus, Wolsey, on the whole, had contrived to obtain something resembling his original proposal, but the payments were spread out over a period of four years. After this, Wolsey, at the prorogation of Parliament, could afford to thank the Commons on the King's behalf and assure them that his grace would in such wise employ their loving contribution as should be for the defence of his realm and of his subjects and the persecution and pressing of his enemy. Yet, however Wolsey might rejoice in his success, he knew that he had received a serious warning, which he was bound to lay to heart. He had been faithful to the king and had done his best to carry out his views. The war with France was none of his advising and he had no hopes of any advantage from it. Yet he was willing to take all the blame of the measures which inwardly he disapproved. He stood forward and assumed the unpopularity of taxation, whose necessity he deplored. Henry spent the nation's money at his pleasure and Wolsey undertook the ungrateful task of squeezing supplies from a reluctant parliament. While the king sat a benevolent spectator in the background, Henry took all the glory and left Wolsey to do all the unpleasant work. Wolsey stood between the national temper and the king. He felt that he could not stand under the odium of accomplishing many more such reconciliations. England had reached the limits of its aspiration after the national glory. For the future, Wolsey must tame the king's honour without appealing to the national pocket. There was no prospect of obtaining further supplies from Parliament and the best way to pay the expenses of a futile war was to make a lucrative peace. Woolsey tried to induce Francis I to renew his financial agreement with Henry VIII, which the war had broken off, and to bring pressure to bear upon him for this purpose, was willing to continue with Charles V negotiations for a fresh undertaking. So in June, the unwearied pace was sent to Bourbons' camp to promise England's help on terms, which Woolsey knew were sure to be refused. England would again join in a campaign against France in the north, provided Bourbon, by an invasion of Provence, succeeded in raising a rebellion against Francis I, and would take an oath of allegiance to the English king as lord of France. Bourbon sorely needed money, and did all he could to win over Pace. He secretly took an oath of fidelity, not of allegiance, and Pace was impressed with the admiration of his genius, and believed in his chances of success. Wolsey was coldly cautious towards Pace's enthusiasm, and the result was a breach between them. Pace openly blamed Wolsey, as Wingfield had done before, and pressed for money and an armed demonstration. Wolsey soberly rebuked his lack of judgment by setting before him a well-considered survey of the political chances. His caution proved to be justified, as Bourbon's invasion of Provence was a failure. Wolsey gained all that he needed by his pretense of helping Bourbon. He induced the French court to undertake negotiations seriously by means of secret envoys who were sent to London. Still, Wolsey did not hide from himself the difficulties in the way of an alliance with France which would satisfy Henry VIII or bring substantial advantage to the country. However, on one point he managed to obtain an immediate advantage. He always kept his eye on Scotland, and now used the first signs of returning friendliness on the part of France to further his scheme of restoring English influence in that country. In June, the Duke of Albany was recalled to France, and Wolsey set to work to win back Queen Margaret to her brother's cause. He seems to have despaired of blandishments and contrived a way to acquire a more powerful weapon. Margaret's husband, the Earl of Angus, had been sent by Albany to France, where he was carefully guarded. On the first signs of renewed friendliness between England and France, a hint from Wolsey procured an opportunity of escaping to England, with Angus at his disposal. Wolsey urged Margaret to be reconciled to her husband, and terrified her by the prospect of alternately restoring him to Scotland. By playing cleverly on her personal feelings, Wolsey led her by degrees to accept his own plan for freeing Scotland from Albany and French interference. He urged that the young king was now old enough to rule for himself, and promised Margaret help to secure her supremacy in his council. At the same time, he won over the Scottish Lords by the prospect of a marriage between James and Mary of England who was still Henry VIII's heir. In August, James V was set up as king, and the Scottish Parliament approved of the English marriage. Again, Wolsey won a signal triumph, and accomplished by diplomacy what the sword had been unable to achieve. We need not follow the complicated diplomacy of the year of 1524, which was transferred to Italy. Whither Francis I had pursued Bourbon, and was engaged in the siege of Pavia. It is enough to say that Wolsey pursued a cautious course, if Francis won the day in Italy, he was ready to treat with him liberally. If the imperial arms prevailed, then he could sell England's alliance more dearly. But this cautious attitude was displeasing to Charles, whose ambassador in London, de Praet, complained without ceasing of the growing coldness of Henry and Wolsey. Wolsey kept a sharp watch De Praet, and resented his keen sightedness. Finally, in February 1525, de Praet's dispatches were intercepted, and he was called before the council when Wolsey charged him with untruth. The prate answered by complaining that his privileges as an ambassador had been violated. He was ordered to confine himself to his own house till the king had written to the emperor about his conduct. This was indeed unheard of treatment for the ambassador of an ally, and we can scarcely attribute it merely to personal spite on the part of a so skilled a statesman as Wolsey. Perhaps it was a deliberate plan to cause a personal breach between Henry and the emperor, no doubt Henry's own feelings were towards Charles rather than Francis, and it seems probable that Wolsey wished to show his master that Charles was only trying to make use of his friendship for his own purpose. The dispatches of Charles as envoy were opened and their contents were made known to Henry for some time before Wolsey took any action. He acted when he saw his master sufficiently irritated, and he probably suggested the best way to give Charles a lesson was by an attack upon his ambassador. This proposal agreed with the high-handed manner of action which Henry loved to adopt. It gave him a chance of asserting his own conceptions of his dignity and he challenged Charles to say if he identified himself with his ambassador's sentiments. Under any circumstances, it was an audacious step and as things turned out, it was an unfortunate one. Within a few days, the news reached England that Francis had been attacked at Pavia by the imperial forces had been entirely routed and was a prisoner in the hands of Charles. Though Woolsey was prepared for some success of the imperial arms, he was taken aback at the decisiveness of the stroke. His time for widening the breach between Charles and Henry had not been well chosen. However, Charles saw that he could not pursue his victory without money, and to obtain money he must adopt an appearance of moderation. So he professed in Italy willingness to forget the past, and and he avoided a quarrel with England. He treated the insult to his ambassador as a result of a personal misunderstanding. Henry complained of de Praet's unfriendly bearing. Charles assured him that no offence was intended. Both parties saved their dignity. De Praet was recalled, and another ambassador was sent in his stead. Wolsey saw that he had been precipitate, and hastened to withdraw his false step. Henry lent him his countenance, but can scarcely have relished doing so. Wolsey knew that his difficulties were increased. The victory of Charles again drew Henry to his side, and revived his projects of conquest at the expense of France now left helpless by its king's captivity. As the defection of Bourbon had formerly awakened Henry's hopes, so now did the captivity of Francis. Again, Wolsey's pacific plans were shattered. Again, he was driven to undertake a preparation for war, which his judgment disapproved. Indeed, Wolsey knew that war was absolutely impossible for want of money, but it was useless to say so to the king. He was bound to try and raise supplies by some means or other, and the experience of the last parliament had shown him that there was no more to be obtained from that source. In this extremity, Wolsey undertook the responsibility of reviving a feudal obligation which had long been forgotten. He announced that the king proposed to pass the sea in person, and demanded the goodwill of his subjects should provide for his proper equipment. But the good will of the people was not allowed to the privilege of spontaneous generosity. Commissioners were appointed in every shire to assess men's property, and require a sixth part of it for the king's needs. Wolsey himself addressed the citizens of London, when they gave a feeble assent to his request for advice, whether they thought it convenient that the king should pass the sea with an army or not. He proceeded, then he must go like a prince. It cannot be without your aid. He unfolded a proposal for a grant of three shillings and fourpence in the pound, on fifty pounds, and upwards of two shillings and eightpence, on twenty pounds and upwards and one shilling in the pound on a pound and upwards. Someone pleaded that the times were bad. Sirs, said Wolsey, speak not to break what is concluded, for some shall not pay even a tenth, and it were better that a few should suffer indignance than the king at this time should lack. Beware, therefore, and resist not, nor ruffle not in this case, otherwise it may fortune to cost some their heads. This was indeed a high-handed way of dealing with a public meeting, which was only summoned to hear the full measure of the coming calamity. We cannot wonder that all the people cursed the cardinal as an adherents as subverters of the laws and liberties of England. Nor was Wolsey ignorant of the unpopularity which he incurred, but there was no escape possible. He rested only on the king's favour, and he knew that the king's personal affection for him had grown colder. He was no longer the king's friend and tutor, inspiring him with his own lofty ideas, and slowly revealing his far-reaching schemes. Late years had seen Wolsey immersed in the business of the state, while the king pursued his own pleasures, surrounded by companions who did their utmost to undermine Wolsey's influence. They advocated war, while he longed for peace. They encouraged the royal extravagance, while he worked for economy. They favoured the imperial alliance and humoured Henry's dreams of the conquest of France, while Wolsey saw that England's strength lay in a powerful neutrality. The king's plans had deviated from the lines which Wolsey had designed, and the king's arbitrary temper had grown more impatient of restraint. Wolsey had imperceptibly slipped from the position of a friend to that of a servant, and he was dimly conscious that his continuance of the royal service depended on his continued usefulness. Whatever the king required, he was bound to provide. So, Wolsey strained every nerve to fill the royal coffers by the device of an amicable loan, which raised a storm of popular indignation. Men said with the truth that they had not yet paid the subsidy voted by Parliament and already they were exposed to a new exaction. Coin had never been plentiful in England and at that time it was exceptionally scarce. The commissioners in the different shires all reported the exceeding difficulty which they met with the discharge of their unpleasant duty. It soon became clear to Wolsey that his demands had overshot the limits of prudence and that money could not be raised on the basis of the parliamentary assessment without the risk of a rebellion. Accordingly, Wolsey withdrew from his original proposal. He sent for the Mayor and Corporation of London and told them in the fictitious language in which constitutional procedure is always veiled and kneeled down to his grace, showing him both your good mind towards him and also the charge you continually sustain, the which, at my desire and petition, was content to call in and abrogate the same commission. The attempt to raise money on the basis of each man's rateable value was abandoned, the more usual method of a benevolence was substituted in its stead. This, however, was not much more acceptable. Again, Wolsey summoned the mayor and corporation, but they had now grown bolder, and pleaded that benevolences had been abolished by the statute of Richard III. Wolsey angrily answered that Richard was a usurper and a murderer of his nephews. How could his acts be good? And it please your grace, was the answer, although he did evil, yet in his time were many good acts made, not by him only, but by the consent of the body of the whole realm, which is Parliament. There was nothing more to be said, and Wolsey had to content himself with leaving every man to contribute privily what he could. It did not seem that this spontaneous liberality went far to replenish the royal exchequer. What happened in London was repeated in different forms in various parts of England. In Norwich there was a tumult, "'which it needed the presence of the Duke of Norfolk to appease. "'He asked the confused assembly, who was their captain, "'and bade that he should speak. "'Then out spake one John Green, a man of fifty years. "'My lord, since you ask who was our captain forsooth, "'his name is Poverty, for he and his cousin necessity "'have brought us to this doing. "'For, for all these persons and many more live not of ourselves, "'but we live by the substantial occupiers of this country.' "'and yet they give us so little wages for our workmanship, "'and scarcely we be able to live. "'Thus in penury we pass the time, our wives and children, "'and if they by whom we live be bought in that case, "'that they of their little cannot help us to earn our living, "'then must we perish and die miserably. "'I speak this, my lord. "'The cloth-maters have put away all their people, "'and a fair greater number from work. "'The husbandmen have put away their servants "'and given up their household. "'They say the king asks us so much.' they may not be able to do as they have done before this time, and then of necessity must we die wretchedly. John Green's speech expressed only too truly the condition of affairs in a period of social change. The old nobility had declined, and the old form of life founded on feudalism was slowly passing away. Trade was becoming more important than agriculture. The growth of wool was more profitable than the growth of corn. It is true that England as a whole was growing richer, that the standard of comfort was rising. But there was a great displacement of labour and consequent discontent. The towns had thriven at the expense of the country, and in late years the war with France had hindered trade with Netherlands. The custom duties had diminished, the drain of bullion for war expenses had crippled English commerce. There had been a succession of bad seasons, and everyone had begun to diminish his establishment and look more carefully after his expenditure. All this was well known to the Duke of Norfolk, and was laid before the King. The commissions were recalled, pardons were granted to the rioters, and the loan was allowed to drop. But Wolsey had to bear all the odium of the unsuccessful attempt, while the King gained all the popularity of abandoning it. Yet Henry Eighth resented the failure, and was angry with Wolsey for exposing him to a rebuff. In spite of his efforts, Wolsey was ceasing to be so useful as he had been before, and Henry began to criticise his minister. Brave and resolute as Wolsey was, his labours and disappointments began to tell upon him. Since the failure of the Conference of Calais, he had been working not at the development of a policy which he approved, but at the uncongenial task of diminishing the dangers of a policy which he disapproved. The effects of this constant anxiety told upon his health and spirits, and still more upon his temper. He might be as able and as firm as ever, but he no longer had the same confidence in himself. It was perhaps this feeling which led Wolsey to show the king the extremity of his desire to serve him by undertaking a desperate endeavour to wring more money from an exhausted people. Wolsey had done his utmost to satisfy the king. He had accepted without a murmur the burden of popular hatred which the attempt was sure to bring. There is a pathos in the words reported by an unfriendly hand addressed to the council. Because every man layeth a burden from him, I am content to take it on me and to endure the fume and noise of the people. For my goodwill towards the king, and comfort of you, my lords and other king's counsellors, but the eternal God knoweth all. Nor was it enough that he submitted to the storm. He wished to give the king a further proof of his devotion, though others might withhold their substance, yet he would not. He offered the king his house at Hampton Court, which he had built as his favourite retreat, and adorned to suit his taste. It was indeed a royal gift and Henry had no scruple in accepting it. But the offer seems to have shown an uneasy desire to draw closer a bond which had gradually loosened and renew an intimacy which was perceptibly diminishing. However, in one way, Wolsey had a right to feel satisfaction even in his ill success. If money was not to be had, war was impossible, and Wolsey might now pursue his own policy and work for peace. He had to face the actual facts that England was allied to Charles, who had won a signal victory over Francis, and had in his hands a mighty hostage in the person of the King of France. His first object was to discover Charles V's intentions, and prevent him from using his advantage solely for his own profit. Bishop Tunstall and Sir Richard Wingfield were sent to Charles with orders to put on a bold face, and find whether Charles thought of dethroning Francis or releasing him for ransom. In the first case, they were to offer military aid from England. In the second... They were to claim for England a large share in the concessions to be wrung out of Francis. The English demands were so exorbitant that though they may have satisfied the fantastic aspirations of Henry, Wolsey must have known them to be impossible. Under cover of a friendly proposal to Charles, he was wearily preparing a way for a breach. Charles on his side was playing in a similar game. In spite of his success at Pavia, he was really helpless. He had no money, and the captivity of the French king awakened so much alarm in Europe that he felt compelled to use his advantage moderately. As a first measure, he needed money, and saw no chance of obtaining it save by marrying Isabella of Portugal, who would bring a dowry of one million golden crowns. For this purpose, he must free himself from the engagement of the Treaty of Windsor, by which he was betrothed to Mary of England. So he acted as Wolsey was acting. He professed a great desire to carry out his engagements as a means of getting rid of it, and sent ambassadors to ask that Mary and her diaries should be given to him with a further loan of 200,000 ducats. The two embassies had crossed on the way, and Henry received Charles's communication as an answer to his demands. In this way, it served Walty's purpose admirably, for it showed clearly enough that the interests of Henry and Charles were not the same. Charles was bent upon pursuing his own advantage, and was still willing to use Henry as a useful ally, but Henry saw nothing to be gained from the alliance, and the time had come when some tangible gain was to be secured from all this expenditure. Hitherto, he had been personally on Charles's side, but in his conferences with the imperial envoys in the month of June, he made it clear that his patience was exhausted. Henceforth, he accepted Wolsey's views of peace with France. If Charles was striving to make what he could out of the captivity of the French king, then England might as well join in the scramble. The misfortune of France was England's opportunity. If Charles was not willing to share his gains with Henry, then Henry must pick up what he could for himself. It was an unwelcome conclusion for Charles, who hoped to bring the pressure of an irresistible necessity to bear on his captive. England also joined in the bidding, its competition would run down his price. Moreover, his, this resolution of Henry made a great change in his domestic relations. Queen Catherine was devoted to her nephew's interests and had exercised considerable influence over her husband. They had talked together about politics, and Henry liked to move amidst acquiescent admiration. All that was now at an end, as Catherine could not change her sympathies, and had not the tact to disguise her disapprobation. From this time forward, Henry did not treat her with the affection and familiarity which had been his wont, and when he made up his mind, he did not scruple to emphasise his decision by his acts. He had not been a faithful husband. But hitherto his infidelity had not been a cause of domestic discord. He had an illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, by Elizabeth Blunt, one of the ladies in waiting. And on the 15th of June he created this boy of six years old, Duke of Richmond. This he did with a display of pomp and ceremony, which must have been very offensive to the Queen. Nor was the office diminished when, a month afterwards, the boy was created Lord High Admiral of England. Such an act was, to say the least, a taunt to Catherine that she had borne no son. It was a public proclamation of the king's disappointment and discontent with his matrimonial lot. The luckless Catherine could make no complaint and was forced to submit to the king's will, but we cannot doubt that she put down to Woolsey what was not his due and that Woolsey had to bear the hatred of her friends and for the king's change of policy and all that flowed from it. However, Wolsey's course was now clearly to dissolve the imperial alliance without causing a breach. For this purpose, he used Charles's desire for his Portuguese marriage. He offered to release Charles from his engagement to Mary, on condition that the treaty was annulled, that he paid his debts to Henry, and concluded a peace with France to England's satisfaction. Charles refused to take any steps so decided, and the negotiations proceeded. But Wolsey's attention was not so much directed to Charles as to France, where Louise, the king's mother, was desperately striving to procure her son's release. In their dealings with France, there was a keen rivalry between England and the Emperor, which should succeed in making terms soonest. In this competition, Woolsey had one advantage. He had already learned the stubbornness of the national spirit of France, and in its willingness to submit anything rather than territorial loss. So while Charles haggled for provinces, Woolsey demanded money. He told the French envoys that in order to make peace without having one laurels to justify it, Henry could not take less than two million crowns and he would hear of no abatement. There was much discussion of all the old claims of England for compensation from France, but Wolsey knew the necessity of the moment and carried all his points. When the terms were agreed upon, there was another lengthy discussion about security to be given. Francis was a prisoner in Spain and though his mother was regent, a doubt might be thrown upon her capacity to ratify such an important treaty. Wolsey would admit no doubts in this matter. He knew that peace with France would not be popular, but he was determined that his master should see its advantage in the substantial form of ready money with good security for its payment. Besides ratification by the regent, he demanded the personal security of several French nobles of towns and local estates. At length, he was satisfied. The treaty was signed on the 30th of August and was published on the 6th of September. Henry was to receive two million crowns in annual installments of 50,000. The treaty included Scotland as an ally of France and it was stipulated that the Duke of Albany was not to return. Scotland, left unprotected, was bound to follow France and in January 1526, peace was signed with Scotland to the satisfaction of both countries. Wolsey could congratulate himself on the result of his work. Again, he had won for England a strong position by setting her in the forefront of the opposition to the overweening power of the empire. Again, had England's action done much to restore the equilibrium of Europe. This had been achieved solely by Wolsey's diplomacy. Charles V had received a blow, which he could neither parry nor resent. The French treaty with England deprived Charles of the means of exercising irresistible pressure upon Francis, and encouraged the Italian states to form an alliance against the emperor. Francis... Weary of his long captivity, signed the Treaty of Madrid and obtained his freedom in February 1526. But he previously protested against it as it was exhorted by violence and refused to surrender an inch of French territory notwithstanding his promises. Charles gained little for his victory at Pavia. His hands were again full as the Turks invaded Hungary and Francis joined the Italian League against him. He still had every motive to keep on good terms with England and Wolsey had no desire to precipitate a breach. So Wolsey's policy for the future was one of caution and reserve. The king withdrew more and more from public affairs and spent his time in hunting. His relations with Catherine became day by day more irksome, and he tried to forget his domestic life by leading a life of pleasure. Wolsey strove to hold the balance between Charles and Francis without unduly inclining to either side. Both wished to be on good terms with England, for neither was free from anxiety. The sons of Francis were hostages in Spain, and Charles was hampered by the opposition of the Italian League. Of this League, Henry VIII was a member, but he declined to give it any active support. The Italians, as usual, were divided, and Clement VII was not the man to direct their distracted councils successfully. In September 1526, a small force of Spaniards, aided by a party amongst the Roman barons, surprised Rome, sacked the papal palace, and filled Clement with terror. Charles V disavowed any share in this attack and excused himself before Henry's remonstrances. But as Clement did not entirely amend his ways, the experiment was repeated on a larger scale. In May 1527, the imperial troops under the Duke of Bourbon and the German general George Fundsburg captured and plundered Rome and took the Pope prisoner. This unwanted deed filled Europe with horror. It seems as if the Emperor had joined the enemies of the Church. During this period... Wolsey had been cautiously drawing near to France. At first, he only contemplated strengthening the ties which bound the two countries together, but at the beginning of 1527, he was willing to form a close alliance with France, which must lead to a breach with the emperor. French commissioners came to London, and a proposal was made that Francis should marry Mary, then a child of 10, though he was betrothed to the emperor's sister, Eleanor. Wolsey's demands were high, a perpetual peace between the two countries, a perpetual pension of 50,000 crowns to the English king, a tribute of salt and the surrender of Boulogne and Ardares. In the course of the discussion, the son of Francis, the Duke of Orleans, was substituted for the father of Mary's husband. On all points, Wolsey had his will, and never did he show himself a more consummate master of diplomacy. The treaty was signed on the 30th of April, the debts of Charles were transferred to Francis, and Wolsey could show that he had made a substantial gain. Doubtless Wolsey intended that this peace with France should form the basis of a universal peace, which he never ceased to pursue. The success of Charles V in Italy, and subsequent events at home, rapidly dispelled his hopes. Again, the self-will of Henry VIII had driven him to consent to measures which were against his judgment. The same self-will turned to domestic and personal affairs, and was already threatening to involve Wolsey in a matter whose far-reaching effects no man could foresee. End of chapter 7